Come on, let's give Jesus a hand clap of praise. Come on, you could do better than that. Give Jesus, give Jesus a hand clap of praise. Is he good this morning? Hallelujah. Thank you, God. Come on, let's pray. Father, we thank you for goodness and grace. Thank you for your son. Thank you for this place. Thank you for this church. Thank you for this moment. Thank you for life. Thank you for breath. Thank you for strength. Thank you that you woke us up this morning with the mind to be in church. Father, thank you for, the, for, for the waking us up this morning in our right mind. We know our name. God, we are thankful for all that you have done in and through your church. And so, Father, we ask your blessing upon this time. Father, we ask that you would throw your weight around in here. Father, we ask that your spirit would be here among us, Lord, in an unusual way. I pray, Lord, that you would meet us, that you would give us ears to hear, Give us hearts to receive what you want to say to us this morning. Lord, help your word to be proclaimed. It is the engrafted word of God that is able to save men and women's soul. Save someone's soul this morning. Rescue them. Redeem them. Change us. Awaken blind eyes this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Every glad heart said amen. Amen. Give God another hand clap of praise. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. We are continuing in our series. Hi, my name is uh, Pastor Rodney. For those that are new or don't know me, uh, get the service lead pastor of this church, and I'm thankful for all that God is doing in and through this, this local gathering. But we're continuing in our series, and the title is Complicated. It's a biblical look at modern American issues. Uh, the gospel is simple. The gospel is simple, but its implications at times can be complicated. And so I want to give you a roadmap for where we're going over the next four more weeks. We are doing part two of this series on sexuality and the gospel. Uh, next week, I, I encourage you to come. We're going to be talking with a very candid discussion about race. I think it's going to be impactful and helpful for you. Uh, then we'll go to the tricky terrain of politics, uh, and then we'll figure out how to uh, bring uh, gospel values to bear at our place of employment. Amen? So I'm talking about sexuality, and I'll be talking about homosexuality today as well. And the question can come up, why do this, Rodney? This is um, a... a, a, a sensitive subject, if you will, um, again, tricky terrain, so why address this? And here's why I'm doing this. Number one, I love you. Number two, the Bible addresses it, and we want to be a church that preaches the Bible faithfully. So if necessary, as Paul did, and we'll see this in Romans chapter 1, to address biblically what our culture is experiencing. Amen? So my aim, here's my goal, I want to remind you of this, this is important. The aim for this goal is to equip missionaries 
And by this word missionaries, I, I, I mean those that may be here uh, that, are, that are really struggling with sexual sins, who would call themselves a Christian. I want you to receive some of the grace of God this morning in the instructions from the Lord because he did not just call you to be a Christian, he called you to be a missionary. What I mean by this word missionary is one that takes the good news about Jesus to the people in your sphere of influence. So it's not just about us. Christianity is not a get out of hell card. Okay, he's called us to be salt and light and to be able to give a defense for the hope that's within us. And so my aim here is to equip missionaries, those that may be struggling with sexual sin, uh, those that may not be struggling with sexual sin, you are, you, I, I want you to love, learn, and engage the world with the hope of the gospel. Amen? Love, learn, and engage the world with the hope of the gospel. So today we tackle, or we continue in sexuality. I want to uh, commend to you, if you've missed last week, please go to uh, our, our iTunes and listen to our podcast. It's called the Gospel Fellowship Podcast. We're keeping all of our sermons there in order so you can go back and get caught up the next week. If you're new here or you weren't here last week, you're going to need next week for foundation. So please go back and listen to that. Amen. In addition, I want to offer you some resources. Somebody say resources. Um, I want you to be people that think. And so there are three resources, three books I want to commend to you. Um, the first book is called is God anti-gay? Is God anti-gay? It is by Sam Alberry. Um, it's a small little book. Uh, I have a copy of it, and it'll be out on the counter in the back. Uh, somebody's going to grab that. Um, it is a great little read. It's probably 60 or 7, 70 pages. A little small book. My prayer is that everybody in here get it. It's, it's probably $5.99 or something on Amazon Kindle. So go pick that up. Amen. The next one is Jackie Hill Perry, famous poet uh, and, and Christian uh, hip-hop artist, uh, wrote the book Gay Girl, Good God. It is a fascinating, fascinating read. Uh, if, if you struggle with reading and you need a little seasoning salt on your reading, uh, this is the book for you to get because Jackie is just incredible with her wordplay. I called a poet this week and I said, if you have not read this book, you need to because the wordplay is ridiculous and it is gospel-centered and a candid look into the life of someone that struggles with same-sex attraction. Finally, Kevin DeYoung's book, What Does the Bible Teach About Homosexuality? If you're more theologically astute, if you want uh, more nuance on scripture interpretation and hermeneutics, you want to dive a little bit deeper into the subject, I want to recommend that book to you. I think it is a faithful and accurate uh, depiction of what the Bible teaches about uh, homosexuality. Amen? So I want to get those resources to you. Somebody say read. Please don't be no lazy Christian. I should show you the list of books I've read in preparing for this. Please don't be no lazy Christian. Please be a Christian that engages their faith seriously. One of the things I would say uh, just on the onset about the LGBT community, that is an intelligent community. So if you're serious about being a missionary, you need to be equipping yourself in 
information, particularly as it relates to what God's word has to say about sexuality. Amen? Amen. Let's jump into the text. I'll be in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 28. Should be on the screen. It says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And by this word they, for clarity, he's talking about, verse 18, the ungodly and the unrighteous, those who have not been illuminated by the gospel. Verse 21 For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fool and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creepy things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passion for their women exchanged the natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind and do what ought not to be done, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, contentiousness, and malice. They were full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve death or to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. That's a lot. I'm going to talk to you about three things. Number one, truth and sexuality. Number two, homophobia versus relationship theology or relational theology. And number three, our way forward. Let's pray again. Father, we broach upon a challenging topic. We pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding, keep me from error, keep me from unnecessary offense. Your gospel is offensive, uh, Father, by itself. I don't need to add anything to it. But it's also, as it cuts in offense, it brings in reconciliation, it heals, it makes whole, it redeems. So, Lord, would you make plain not just the good news of the gospel this morning, but also the bad news so that we may grow thereby, that we may be equipped. We ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
want to do a little bit of review. I can't do the full thing, but just to catch some folk up. Uh, we talked yes, uh, last week a little bit about um, our culture's view on sexuality. One of the quotes that I said was uh, 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 that our sexuality should not be chaperoned by emotionalism or morality. And this is, this is a position that many take, like leave my sexuality alone. Mind your business. Back off. Give me space. My sexuality is my sexuality. It is my choice. It is what I desire, and it shouldn't be chaperoned by your morality. We talked a little bit about how culture uh, goes out of its way to, to inundate us with what they think sexuality should be, and so to think in a way that's contrary to, to what culture says almost makes you seem uneducated or foolish, or traditional, or married to antiquated thoughts and ideas about sexuality. So what we see as believers is we lift up this truth. And when it comes to sexuality as a believer or as a person that is, that is uh, a searching for spiritual truth. I, I believe that we all have this God-sized hole in our hearts that only God can fill. So even if you say, man, this morning, Rodney, I ain't no Christian. I ain't going to claim to be no Christian, but I want to know what it says. Uh, to, to, to go to that pursuit means we're going to lift up what this book says, this book that has been tested, this book that has been tried, this, this faith that, that, that people have laid down their life for over thousands of years and still it bears itself out. Our faith, Christianity, is not dwindling globally, it's actually expanding globally. This faith, this antiquated book is growing all over the world. And so when it comes to our sexuality, we need to open this book and say, okay, what does God have to say about it? And when we do that, here's what we find. God should have something to say about our sexuality because he made it. It's his idea. It's his design. He knows how our bodies operate. And he made us didn't just design sexuality as a function and knows how it's supposed to function, but he knows how it functions best. He knows how sexuality thrives. And his plan for sexuality from the beginning was one man and one woman for life. So what's the problem? Sin came in, and when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and sinned against his law and command. The Bible says all of humanity fell in Adam. That the, that the brokenness that happened in the garden, that the sin that happened in the garden didn't just affect those two, it affected us all. And so we live in a broken world. We, 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 we dwell in broken bodies whose, whose desire is against the original intent of God. Not just did sin come and it separates us from God. It's what sin comes to do. It also broke our sexuality. 
what we talked about last week, that because of sin, our sexuality is broken. And so we talked about the porn addiction. We, we gave numbers and statistics to that. We, we talked a little about homosexuality. We'll talk more about that today. We talked about the rising rates of adultery in our society. And, and, and whether you're a Christian or not, get married and let someone sleep with someone else, that hurts. You don't need a verse to back up, that was wrong. Forget marriage. Be dating somebody, and you find out somebody is DMing your boo. You don't need no theology for that. You're mad because you were wired for more than, than dating. We talked about this one flesh union that God seeks to create between man and woman. This one flesh is not, okay, the body parts fit, although that's true. This one flesh union is more than the, bodies, the body parts fit and is this going to lend itself to procreation so that we could populate the earth. That's true. That's, that's the one flesh union he's talking about. But he's also saying one flesh emotionally, one flesh psychologically, one flesh financially, one flesh intellectually. He's, he's, in, in his design of marriage, he's trying to say, what is the best way for man and woman to flourish? Oh, I know, I know. I'll, I'll put them together in holy matrimony and call them to be faithful to each other alone. It's his design. But because of our sin, we have adultery and fornication, even on websites like Christian Mingle. Um, we have sexual fantasies with people. They don't know about it. Nobody knows about it. It's just that little place we go in our mind to fantasize about someone, whether it's someone else's spouse or just someone, some other single at work. You got your whole life planned out with them. You got vacations planned out with them in your mind. Not just the sins we commit, watch this, the sins that are committed against us. Not just the sexual sins we commit, but the sexual sins that are committed against us. And this is where sexual abuse comes in, rape comes in, molestation comes in. Why did that happen? Because we're sexually broken. We have disordered desires. Now the question on the table is, we get to our text, is okay, Rodney, cool. How did we get there? How did we get so far from God's design? The Apostle Paul is going to help us this morning. Let me give you a little bit on Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul uh, was, was raised very intelligently and theologically. He was trained by the best scholars of his day, and he grew up in Judaism. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and, and he persecuted the church, which means if he found out that you were following Jesus, he sought to find you, arrest you, put you in jail, if not kill you. This, is, this was the Apostle Paul. God radically changed Paul in Acts chapter 9. He is converted and he becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. And God uses him to, to, to bring the gospel, not to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And so he goes out into places that did not grow up with this construct of Judaism. He goes out into what the old church used to call the hedges and highways and byways. And he establishes churches. 
he does this in a city called Rome that's known for its, its Greek culture, that's known for its intelligence, and also known for their debauchery as it relates to sexual sin. Rome was wild. And Paul says, I know a good place for a church. Let's plant it in Rome. And this, this book of Romans is called one of the greatest letters ever written. It is, it is Paul's best work, and he, he, is, he is writing this to the church. I don't want you to hear this so much as a theological, theological letter, although it is. He's writing this to people he loves. Have you ever written a love letter? Anybody? Raise your hand. Just talk to me. Keep, okay, praise God. Okay. Even if it was fourth grade, it still counts. You little fourth grade. Do you like me? Circle yes. No, that counts. That counts. You wrote a, a, you know, Kaisha and I we were dating, and she, she she was in Jacksonville for 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 two years, and I was in South Florida, and and man, just just this this distance. It's, it's sometimes I would write her a letter, not often, because you know I'm not paying to write, but sometimes I write her a letter. And here's the idea: as I'm writing the letter, I'm I'm not just putting words on pages. I'm I'm trying to put words to images of her beauty. I'm trying to put words to how much I miss her. In other words, I have her in mind as I'm writing. This is the Apostle Paul. He has the church at Rome on his mind as he's writing and he's thinking about his pastoral relationship with his readers. So read, hear these words out of Paul's immense love for the church at Rome in which he will eventually give his life for the church of Jesus Christ. Start in verse 18. Paul would say, the reason we got to where we are is because the ungodly and the unrighteous. Please get who Paul is talking to clear. He's talking about people who have not been awakened to the gospel. He's, he's talking about people who, who, who do not know Christ as Lord. He's talking about those who, who would not consider themselves a Christian Listen to what Paul says. That the ungodly and the unrighteous, they suppress the truth about God. I was thinking about, um, I'm going to date myself, um, this 1991 uh, thriller named The People Under the Stairs. Anybody? Thank you. Two, two, four, okay, I see you. Okay, rest of y'all Google something. Anyway, it's a movie about this couple, this older couple, who, who appear to have life all together on the outside. And this young man and his uncle, he, they, they, they walk into the house, and they're actually trying to rob the house. But as they're trying to rob the house, they find out that this couple that looks like they have it all together has actually been taking kids and storing them under the stairs in the basement for years. And as they're trying to rob this house, they, they, they find out that this couple have all of these kids hidden and locked in cages in their basement. And I think this is the idea that Paul is getting at when he says they suppress the truth about God. It's, it's there. They, they, they know that the truth is there, but they hide the truth. The, the, the truth about God is being suppressed. It is the idea of locking someone in a room and they're banging on the door and then somebody else shows up and, and, and they see you standing in front of the door. They, they know you're hiding something, but you're acting like nothing is wrong. 
Paul says, this is what the unrighteous do. They suppress the truth about God. Verse 19 is telling, and it helps us understand this suppressing of truth because it says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Now, that's, now that's a, it's one thing to suppress the truth and you don't know it's the truth. It's, it's, it's one thing to suppress the truth and you, th- you thought the truth was a lie. But Paul tells us something else is happening. They are suppressing what they know to be the truth. Well, what does that mean? That means all of creation can look at the creation and tell there must be a creator. And that singular truth should lead them to accountability that they cannot be superior to the creator if they are the created. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain. It's plain to them. It's plain to them because God has shown it to them. God has shown it to them. Verse 20, for the invisible attributes, namely God's eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in these things that have been made. So they, the unrighteous, the ungodly, are without excuse. Cold-blooded, y'all. In other words, you should be able to go out. My wife and I, we were reading, I believe Psalms 33 or Psalms 34 was the passage for yesterday, and we we're reading this, and it talks about how, how, how God made the oceans and, 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 and closed the doors on the ocean. I started thinking about that, and it took us to a passage in Job that said something very, very similar. And I'm thinking, man, how do you look out at the beach and it looks flat? Have y'all ever wondered that? If I would have made the ocean, it would have it, it looked like it was coming up like this right there. I mean, something would have been off. He, he, he made it to where as it gets deeper, the seafloor gets lower. In other words, in creation, he told the waters where to stop. Last fall, we got a chance to go out to Denver, Colorado. We're driving through the, the mountains in Colorado, and we don't see this in Florida. But mountains, especially driving at night, it's kind of eerie to look at some mountains, man. The size, the majesty, you drive your little car, the size and majesties of those mountains. And part of you should be thinking, man, look at God's creation and how he has made this beautiful creation for us. Just as you compare physically who you are to what that is, some should make you look upward. This is what Paul is saying, that, that, that God has made himself known to all of humanity. Now, some may say, well, Rodney, does that mean uh, so, so that they got the gospel? Not necessarily. There are still unreached areas in our world. There are still missionaries that need to go. But what it is saying is that they should have enough information about God to worship as they lift their head up and know we didn't get here on our own. Paul argues whether you are in the most remote jungle of the world, or next door to the concrete jungle in which we live, we can see there must be someone that has created this. So studying this week, I came across this, this little write-up. It said, the argument is overwhelming. If I put 10 pennies in my pocket and number them from 1 to 10, then put, it back, uh, then put my hand back in my pocket, my chances of pulling out the number 1 penny would be 1 in 10. 
If I place the number one penny back in my pocket and mix all the pennies up again, the chances of pulling out the number two penny would be one in 100. The chances of repeating the same procedure and coming up with a penny, number three, would be one in 1,000. To do so with all of them would be one, uh, do them with all of them in order from one to 10 would be nearly one in four million. To look at creation is to look at the handiwork of a God that created this world and filled it with people, and this God should be worshipped. I love what F.F. Bruce says about this. He says, and this is heavy, so wade in. He says, on contemplating God's work, man can grasp enough about his nature to prevent him from the error of identifying any of the created things with the creator, enabling him to keep his conception of the deity free from idolatry. Here's what F.F. Bruce says. You should know enough by looking at the creation. Lion, you ain't no God. Giraffe, you ain't no God. My cousin, you couldn't be God. The sun is cute, but that's not it. Something had to make you too. We should be able to look at creation and tell that there's a God. So Paul says, you are without excuse. Number one, they suppress the truth. Number two, they exchanged God for an idol. They knew God, but did not honor him or give thanks to him as God. This is why creation is important to meditate on. It gives us perspective and should lead us to thanksgiving. But that's not what the unrighteous do. The unrighteous will look and say, I don't care how beautiful this creation is. It just got here. I ain't giving no God no credit. I'm not thankful to him for inhaling and exhaling. It's coincidence. It's happenstance. The Bible says because they exchanged the glory of God for idle things, they became futile in their thinking or pointless in their thinking. Their hearts were darkened. Thinking they were wise, they became fools. Now, to be clear, this foolishness is not about your intelligence. You can be a brilliant fool because the Bible says that, 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 the, that, the, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. But you can be a brilliant fool if you don't acknowledge that there must be a creator for this creation. And so what did they do? They exchanged the immortal God for mortal men, images, birds, animals, and creeping things. In other words, they made the creation the creator. In this culture in Rome, they would have things called house god, these little images that they would, they would manufacture or they would purchase and they would put in their house and they would build little altars and they would come to worship these images of created things. This is part of what Paul is addressing in this passage. But not just, not just that, because for us today, we maybe in your house you don't have an altar with little images, little birds, and little snakes and stuff like that, and you go bow down to that and worship. I would argue that, that our idols in today's culture aren't made with metal, they're made mentally. We erect altars of idolatry in our mind. And we worship at stuff like work and marriage and success. 
to ministry. And Paul would argue, no, that's the created stuff. That's, that's not the creator. But they exchange God for idolatry. This is classical humanism. Humanism is a big word that just means a man-centered way of life. It is this idea that I am at the center of my own universe and all of my pursuits must be about me. But it's hard to live a sacrificial life when you're a humanist. Because you have to, by definition, the way I got to get up means somebody else got to get down. And if you got to get down, oh well. And now, as Paul keeps unpacking this idolatry, now he gets to how idolatry and exchanging the truth of God for a lie comes to bear in our sexuality. Look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them up. Now that's a scary, that's a scary phrase. That God gave them up. In other words, God said, okay, uh, you don't want to acknowledge me. You don't want to be thankful. You want to believe a lie. You rather worship things other than me. You want to resist me. You want to close your ears to my truth. You don't want to hear what I got to say. Okay, do you, boo-boo, do you. Sorry, that's the translation of God gave them up. Do you. It's a scary thing. When God gives you up to your own devices. The Bible says God gave them up. To what? In the lust of their hearts. To impurities. You want to live impure? Go. To dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Now listen, before we touch homosexuality, and Paul will in just another verse, when he says the dishonoring of their bodies, he's talking about sexual immorality. Hear this. Paul is talking about heterosexual sin before he addresses homosexual sin. It's in the text. Verse 24, he gave the, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, sexual impurity, to dishonor their body among themselves. Paul is saying, keep rejecting God, and, and this is what's going to happen sexually for you. Keep, keep, keep stiff-arming God and saying, I got to leave the church so I can find my significant other, then I'll come back and worship at the church. I got I to gotta do what the world do. I'll get booed up, then I'll come back. I'll be back, Pastor. I'll be back. See who you pick. Because you, 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 you say, no, I'm going to reject what you're saying, and I know best. I'm in this season in my life where I just know best right now. See who you pick. If you give yourself up to the lust of impurities, you'll pick the um, impure. give yourself up to be ratchet, you're going to pick someone ratchet. I love, how, I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. Are y'all with me? I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, the loss, he says, enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded. 
sorry, that's cold-blooded. The loss, he says, enjoys the horrible, the, the, the horrible freedom they have demanded and therefore are self-enslaved. I don't need God. I'm going to do my own thing. And what happens is they're demanding slavery. Give me slavery. Give, give what's going to hold me bondage. I want what's not going to satisfy me. I know he won't satisfy me, but I want him. I know she's not what I need, but I need him. You, you, you long for what brings you into bondage and leaves you wanting. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. So God gave them up to impurity. This, 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 this term, God gave them up, is said three times in this passage before chapter 1 closes. God avenges himself by allowing the ever-deepening decline of evil in men and women. Now we get to Romans 1.26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged the natural relations for, for those that are contrary to nature. In other words, women sleeping with women. And the men likewise gave them up natural relations for women who were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in their due penalty for their error. This is the most, in, in, in my mind, the most clear the clearest understanding of what the Bible teaches about homosexuality. Paul is incredibly clear. The word for, net, for natural or contrary to nature does not describe our subjective experience of what we feel natural to us, but instead refers to the fixed way of sexuality in creation. Rodney, what are you saying? Paul is not saying here, when he talks about natural or contrary to nature, he's not talking about your orientation. He's talking about how the action of homosexuality is completely contrary or against what God has set up in creation. In other words, this is not what God has designed, and it is contrary to the way he set it up. It's contrary to his intent. Homosexuality is contrary to nature because it goes against God's design for sexuality. So Paul here is echoing what the Old Testament and Jewish traditions have called homosexuality relationships. Sinful. Let me put in here parenthetically. Paul knew what was happening in Rome. One of the, 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 uh, one of the uh, sins of homosexual, homosexuality that was happening in Rome at the time is these very, very wealthy men would find poor uh, boys to have sex with. These, these men were married men, would not consider themselves homosexual, homosexuals, but the practice would be that they would go out to find little boys to have sex with. Paul knew this was happening, and so Paul is addressing this, but he's not only addressing that kind of homosexuality. That is why he talks about women laying with women as well. Paul, in this passage, is calling all homosexuality sin. 
even committed, monogamous, we're together, we just want to raise a family, we just, just let us be a family, Paul would still call that sin. As we have rejected God, we find ourselves craving what we are naturally designed not to, to want. This is true of heterosexual persons and homosexual persons. So Rodney, you may say, okay, well, that's the Apostle Paul. He ain't Jesus. What did Jesus have to say? Now, I'll tell you up front, Jesus does not mention necessarily the word homosexuality. But watch what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, verse 20 through 23. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For it is from within him, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, uh, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. When he says the word sexual immorality, uh, the, 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 the Greek word there is porneia. It's where we get the English word pornography. In other words, it is, this, this Greek word is kind of a, a junk drawer term. You know what a junk drawer is? Everybody got them in the house. It's, it's the stuff you put that you can't find nothing else to put in there. You got everything in that junk drawer. Porneia is a junk drawer term that covers all sexual acts outside of the union of one man and one woman for life. In other words, Jesus is not plainly saying homosexuality is sin. He, he's almost assuming, of course it is. It's like if I tell my kid, don't go outside. And, and like kids would say, what if I go out the window? You deaf? <laughs> if you go out the window, it's outside. If homosexual acts outside the confines of marriage is sin. And Paul would go on to talk about the debasement of our mind. In verse 28 and verse 29, he would talk about how not only does this lead to our sexual immorality, and not also does this lead to homosexuality, but it also leads to all kinds of sin. It talks about unrighteousness and evil and and murder, and strife, and malice, and gossip. When I think about the shootings that happened in El Paso, in Dayton, I think about the depravity that Paul's talking about here in Romans chapter 1. When I think about the young girls across the world that are used in sex trafficking for the pleasure of men for money, I think about Romans chapter 1. See, Paul is unloading for his hearer how we got here. Let me read this, this little story to you. There was a boy named Eric that was raised in a conservative Christian home, and at a young age, Eric realized he was different, and other kids at school let him know it. He endured relentlessly the ongoing bullying throughout kindergarten, and the rest of his elementary school years were tarnished with horror. I was physically, mentally, verbally, emotionally assaulted on a daily basis, recalls Eric. This led to chronic migraines, debilitating depression, suicidal thoughts, and a whole host of others, mental and physical problems. My name was not Eric, 
but faggot. I was stalked, sped on, ostracized. On one occasion, he, he was assaulted, uh, assaulted in front of a classroom, and nobody intervened, not even the teacher who was present. Throughout school, Eric was treated like a monster, a subspecies of the human race. I was told that every essence of my being was unacceptable, and I had nowhere safe to go, not even the church. In his sophomore year of college, Eric came out to his parents. He told them that he was gay. After performing an exorcism on his son, they told him, among other things, that he was disgusting and perverted and unnatural and damned to hell. Later that year, they kicked him out of the house. Eric shared his story on YouTube in 2011. In the video, he encouraged other, young, uh, other youth who have experienced similar experiences that it gets better. Having suffered the ridicule and torment, Eric wanted to help others find comfort and hope to pull them through the pain. One month later, Eric killed himself. What the church has done for too long now is made homosexuality the sin. They've made the church that we belong to have made homosexuality the sin that you cannot recover from, the hopeless sin. And we, the church, have done a horrible job at loving people with same-sex attraction. If there is no place for Eric to go, should his haven not be the church of Jesus Christ? So there's some work that the church must do, and with the little time I have left, that's what I want to talk about, the work that the church must do. Yes, I've, I've said plainly, homosexuality is sin. Okay, Rodney, now what? That's what I want to talk about for the rest of the time. The first thing the church must do is we must combat homophobia. Homophobia is this idea that shows a dislike or a prejudice towards a person from the LGBT community. We cannot stiff-arm people from the LGBTQ community. We must love them. Next week, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about race. We got the same issue with race. There are race phobias. And God has called Christians to love one another, which means this phobia needs to die. It needs to be crucified at the foot of the cross, and you and I and whoever need to repent of it. When, 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 when you see it come up in your life, this is a cause for repentance. Homophobia must die. Why? Because all of us are made in the image of God. All of us, y'all. 
All of us are made in the image of God. All of us are made in his likeness. All of us have dignity and value under the rule of God. Homophobic Christians desire to make homosexuality the unpardonable sin, but that is not, that is not, that is not the case. We got to put that to death. Amen? How do we do that? By building relationships. By going out of our way to build relationships the same way Christ went out of his way to redeem you. So that's homophobia, but also I don't want us to err into this other side that I'm just entitling relational theology. What I mean by that is the idea that I can have one stance on what the Bible says about homosexuality, but if I meet and spend time with with a person in the homosexual community, I need to now change what the Bible says because I understand the story. See, now I have, I have friends that are homosexuals. And I have people in my family that are homosexuals. And, and man, I, I understand their story and I understand their plight. And I know it's not because they were abused, that, that, that from the earliest moments they can remember, this was their inclination towards the same sex. How can this be wrong? How can loving someone be wrong? And now because you have this relationship, you, you, you renounce the old way. See, these are two extremes that we can function in. We can say, I, I mean, I don't want to have anything to do with homosexuals. Or we can say, as I engage them, man, I'm willing to, what? Man, man, let, God is love. And we will refuse to speak the truth of what God says out of fear of losing a relationship. Beloved, I think there's a third way that he has called us to. He's called us to truth and grace. He's called us to build relationships with people in the homosexual community, but not not capitulate to their ideologies of theology. In other words, I'm not going to change what the Bible says to be your friend, but I want to be your friend. If if you are going through something, I want to be there. I want to be present with you because you are made in his image. And and the same way the the gospel was preached to me, the gospel can be preached to you or was preached to you. In the same way God's calling, I believe God's placed me in your life to be salt and light. I got to do that in a way that's wise. But your greatest need is not gay marriage. Your greatest need is Jesus. I said this last week, it bears repeating. The goal of Christian ministry is not to make homosexuals heterosexuals. The goal of Christian ministry is to make homosexuals conform to the image of Christ. Just like heterosexuals need to be conformed to the image of Christ. Amen? There's good news this morning. God saves sexual sinners.
1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither sexual, immoral, nor idolatrous, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedies, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul makes this plain in 1 Corinthians 6. But then he says this, and such were some of you. And such were some of you. Do you get that? In other words, in Rome, there were men practicing homosexuality, but they didn't stay practicing homosexuality. In the same way, there were men that were adulterers, but are no longer adulterers. There were those who were idolaters that were no longer idolaters. What happened that changed them? You were washed. You were sanctified by Christ. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. In other words, we all come to Christ not being what we should be, but God does not leave us there. He breaks the power of of sexual sin over our life and frees us up to follow him in a new life that we get in Christ Jesus. The gospel saves sinners. The gospel brings approval. Sex, by definition, is you giving yourself over to someone in your most vulnerable position, hoping for approval. The good news of the gospel is Jesus approves you. That God approves you because of Christ's work on the cross. That's good news. The gospel brings a change of identity. In other words, your identity is no longer what your sexual sin was. The cross declares us forgiven. The cross washes us clean. And the scriptures that are God-breathed and eternal profitable have the final say on the identity of the saints. This is why I don't use the term gay Christian. Because I believe that gay should not represent as an adjective to describe Christianity. In other words, I I prefer the term Christian with same-sex attraction. You see, that puts, that, that's a difference. Because now my main identity is who I am in Christ. Christ has washed me. He has cleansed me. He has brought me back. He has put me in relationship with him. And now that is my, that is who I am. I am not my sexuality. Heterosexual and homosexual. That's not, that's, that's, that's an expression of who I am. But that is not who I am as a Christian. I belong to him. And because I belong to him, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. In other words, as I come to him with same-sex attraction, he does not leave me there. He steps in side of me, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And then he steps into the struggle of my same-sex extraction. Rodney, why do you use the word struggle? Because it's the sin that we struggle with. 
The same way he steps into a heterosexual man uh, and, and, and he fights the fight against lust and pornography and adultery and fornication. He steps into the, 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 the person that, that struggles with same-sex attraction and he says, what you get is you get me in the struggle. He is not ignoring how hard the struggle is. He is not saying, I'm going to wave some magic wand and all your same-sex attraction will be gone. That's not what he's saying. What you get in the gospel is God. And he steps into our situation and our temptation and our inclinations and our orientations. And he says, I'm going to be in it with you. And that is the life of every Christian. Lord, as I'm struggling with anger, I need you to step into this. I need you to lean into this. I need you to help me and help my, my, my natural orientation of anger because that's what I saw growing up and that's who I thought I, I need you to step into this and change me from the inside out. But Rodney, anger is not like my sexual orientation. Those are two different things. If, if you say to be Christian means that I may have this orientation and have this attraction, but for the sake of Christ, I will crucify this attraction and live my life out, what does that mean for who I marry? What does that mean for my hopes to have a family? Doesn't God care about that? Why would God want to punish me this way and not give me love? For the believer who struggles with same-sex attraction, here's the reality. Either God comes in, and this is the story of Jackie Perry, and this is the story of, of um, Rosario Butterfield, I believe her name is, that these were avid members of the LGBTQ community. They came to faith in Christ, and slowly God gave them desires for the opposite sex. And they're married. For others, this is the story of Sam Alberry. This is the story of Wesley Hill and a host of others, authors, some pastors who have same-sex attraction. They have said, yes, I would love a family. Yes, I would love a spouse. But I love God more. And so I'm left with this conundrum. Do I live in a way that honors God and sacrifice my desires for love in a family? Or do I just do what everyone else is doing? And they have chosen to love God and surrender their passions. And so they live lives of celibacy, surrender to God, crucifying their flesh every day in hopes that maybe one day God will change my nature. But if he doesn't, He'll change it at a later date in the new heavens, in the new earth, 
They, uh, they, they will attest through their books. I commend them to you. They would attest that, that, that this momentary suffering is only for a moment. But there is laid up some eternal weight that I am looking forward to, to enjoying with my Savior. So I'll suffer today. Yes, I'll suffer today to reign with him tomorrow. These men and women have chosen to follow Jesus even at the expense of not fulfilling their sexual orientation. Beloved, is that not the call for all of us? To follow Jesus no matter what it costs? See, this is where Christianity stops being cute. This is when I got to get an account and really count up the cost and ask questions like, how much am I willing to give up to follow this carpenter from Galilee? Is this Jesus? Is this the, is this the Christ? This is when we really wrestle with our theology because what's at stake is our lives. So our way forward is what we get in the gospel is Jesus. Christ modeled this in the incarnation. Christ embraced this world and he critiqued this world. He came to this world. He lived among us. He dwelled among us. He was where we are. He, he ate what we ate. He, he slept where we slept. He, he fully embraced the world, but he did not hold back critiquing and correcting the world. In the same way, God is calling the members of Gospel Fellowship to embrace the culture in which you live, but not be fearful of critiquing it, rebuking it, challenging it. Because that's really the greatest demonstration of love. It's when I'm willing to tell you the truth and not just what you want to hear. Amen. Everyone standing. You know, two of the most influential men in the New Testament. More is written about these men or written by these men than anyone else in the New Testament. And that's Jesus Christ. And that's the Apostle Paul. Both single men. As I was preparing this week, I was wondering, what if the Apostle Paul said, I hear you, but I'm waiting on my woman of God. When my woman of God show up, I'll start ministry. I'll preach and plant churches when you give me a woman. And I believe one of the huge problems with the church is that we've made the gospel a heterosexual gospel. We have not made any spaces for celibacy, and we do not handle well singles. So we make marriage an idol. And so if you're not married, the question keeps coming, what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong? Or we made motherhood or fatherhood idle, so if you don't have any kids, what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong? When the real thing we should be searching for and going after in Christianity is Jesus Christ himself. And this is what you see modeled in the life of Paul, that he lived his life, as he would say, poured out, poured out out for the gospel. Lord, use me whatever way you want to use me. Do what you want to do with me.